0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. Uh, For anyone who doesn't already know me, I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO. Um, It is, as always, a great thrill to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith auditorium. It is my pleasure this evening to invite our chairman emeritus and uh, current chair of our executive committee, Roger Hertog, to do the formal introductions of our speakers. Uh, Roger Hertog, as um, some of you who were here last evening may have heard me say, not only has had an extraordinary career in business and in public service on um, on boards of the public library, um, AEI, uh, the New York Historical Society, of course, and the New York Philharmonic, among, among many others. But he was president and um, really built up Sanford Bernstein, and uh, had a tremendously, tremendously successful career in everything that he has done. Above all for us, um, we take note of his exemplary leadership, outstanding leadership, which which led to the vision of our beautiful renovation, including this um, very auditorium in which we all have the great pleasure of, of sitting this evening and so much else. So we are extraordinarily grateful to Roger for his leadership, his vision, and the service he has provided to this great institution. So I will now invite him to lead our speakers to the stage, and he will introduce them. Thank you.
1: Okay, I don't have to read that it says, I'm Roger Hertog. Okay. (laughs) I really got good at this. But Um, I'm pleased this evening to welcome you to our program about a book called The Unraveling High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. Its author is Emma Skye, a veteran of years of work in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere in the Middle East, fluent in Arabic who is now a senior director of the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale. Now, given its title, this book may, sound, may not sound like something you really have to read. You probably know already that the Iraq war started off with high hopes, which unraveled for several years in a series of missed opportunities. You won't be surprised to learn that its author, like many people in her English homeland and here, and probably in this audience, had deep concerns about the war. In fact, when Barack Obama was elected president, Emma Skye was quoted as saying, now the US was finally led by a man whose worldview I shared. When she volunteered, to go for the English government to Iraq, she expressed her motivation in part as follows. This was my opportunity to apologize for the war. The woman who showed up in Iraq was, in her own words, the kind of progressive who imagined that Texas is a state of cowboys, electric chairs, right wing zealots, who spend their weekends down by the border shooting Mexicans? <laughs> Coming from New York, I always thought it was the same thing, also. <laughs> That's what she thought the US soldiers in Iraq might be like. Within a few years, this petite woman had been hired as a political advisor by a six foot five Texan with a shaved head, who happened to be the commanding officer in Iraq, General Raymond Odierno. From that moment on hangs this tale. Why should such a soldier hire Emma Skye? As I understand it, he was fearful of being trapped inside a bubble of the U.S. military. Little did he know that he was going to be out of that bubble pretty soon. He was concerned that all of his thoughts and instincts were simply would be reinforced by all the people that reported to him. He wanted an independent view by his side. The unraveling is the story of how he came to consider Emma Sky an indispensable aid and how she began to understand American interests in Iraq and the heroism of American soldiers. This arc And the reasons for her emerging, changing views are why I I think this book is a really important read. For anyone interested in the Iraq War, in the surge, and in the events of 2009, 10, and thereafter, this is a book well worth your time in reading because it's unusual. Tonight, we're fortunate to have our good friend, Max Boot, Jean J. Kirkpatrick, Senior Fellow for the National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, here to discuss Emma's book with her. They'll talk for a while, and then we'll open up the program to questions from the audience. So with that, let me please, let us please all welcome Emma Skye and Max Boot.
2: Thank you very much, Roger. And of course, it is a pleasure to be back again at the wonderful New York Historical Society. And thank you so much to Louise, to Dale, to Roger, to everybody at the Society for creating such a tremendous institution that all of us in New York can take advantage of all the time. And these conversations, I, I always find them to be incredibly interesting. And I'm very grateful uh, for the chance to take part in another one. Now, we come to my interlocutor for tonight, Emma Sky, And let me just say, first of all, to reinforce what Roger just said and to point out a little-known part of the, uh, of the tickets uh, that you just bought, which suggests that you will not be allowed out of this room alive unless you go onto Amazon right now and order a copy of this book. And it, will, it is well, or you're selling it here, Okay. All right. So that, you don't have to do it right now. There's, there's only one way out. And that's through this, that's through the store to buy one of these before you leave. And I would truly highly recommend it. Let me just quote to you from a Wall Street Journal review, uh, written by some brilliant individual who shall go unnamed, who said that Emma has produced a radiant and beautifully written account that turns funny and sad of her service in Iraq. And if you don't believe that, let me cite to you what General David Petraeus said, when he introduced Emma at the, at the 92nd Street Y, where he said, this is a book that contains enormous insights into what transpired in the councils of both the American and Iraqi leadership. It includes many forthright, poignant, profound reflections. And I think that's exactly right. Now let me begin our conversation, Emma, by asking you the basic question, which was, you know, how the heck did you get to Iraq in the first place? And what led you to be interested uh, in the Middle East? Is this just something that's in the water of the UK, that everybody who grows up there has a proclivity to become an Arabist because there have been so many distinguished Arabists that come out of uh, Great Britain?
3: Well, Max, where do I start? I'm laughing a bit bad about what I said about the Texans, but I'll have to go back to the Texans later start with the Middle East. So in 2003, I was living in the north of England in Manchester, and an email went out from the British government asking for volunteers to go out to Iraq for three months to administer the country before we handed it back to the Iraqis. Three months, they said. So I was very much against the war, and as Roger mentioned, I thought there was an opportunity to go out and apologize and to spend three months helping them rebuild their country. I thought I had some useful skills. I'd spent a decade of my life living in Israel-Palestine. So I've been working, helping building up the institutions of the Palestinian Authority, and promoting relations between Israelis and Palestinians. But the story began even before that episode, because the story began, like Bernie Sanders, on a kibbutz in Israel. So that was my first, my first exposure to the Middle East. And that's what had, a, I suppose, a huge influence on my life, because I thought I want to spend my life promoting peace wherever I can. And
2: so that desire to promote peace naturally brought you to Iraq.
3: It's, <laughs> it may sound unusual, but I thought most people in the UK and most people in Europe were against the war, and I didn't want the only interaction that Iraqis had with foreigners to be somebody with a weapon. I thought, I will go out there. I will, you know, I'm somebody who can talk to them, who is familiar to some degree in that culture. I thought, I will do my bit to help them. It was only supposed to be for three months.
2: This is like Gilligan's Island. Um, (laughs) Now, what about the other culture that you became immersed in, not only Iraqi culture, but U.S. military culture, because you wound up working uh, for the U.S. military in Iraq. What was, and in particular, uh, working with an officer named Bill Mayville uh, when you first arrived? But tell, tell us about where you were and about what your impressions were of these guys and their, uh, their uniforms.
3: So when I responded to that email and said, yes, you know, I'll volunteer, um, I didn't know what my job was going to be. I received one phone call from somebody in London, I don't know who it was, but they phoned me up and they said, find your way to the Royal Air Force Base, Brides Norton, jump on a military plane, get to Basra, and you'll be met at the airport by somebody holding a sign with your name on it and taken to the nearest hotel. Well, it sounded plausible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this was June 2003, the invasion had been three months prior. I assumed the war was over. I assumed that the British government knew what they were doing, but they just hadn't told me. (laughs) So I followed the instructions. I found RAF Bryce Norton. I got on the plane. I got to Basra. And that's when the instructions broke down, because nobody had a clue who I was, what I was doing, or why I was there. So there was no hotel. I spent my first night sleeping in the airport, 150-degree heat surrounded by British soldiers, were all stripped down to their underwear, and they were lying on their cool mats. And I didn't have a mat, and I wasn't really wearing appropriate underwear because I hadn't really thought ahead. I thought I was going to be in a hotel. So the next day, I thought, got to get out of here. Um, I'll go to Baghdad. So I flew to Baghdad. From Baghdad, I found a bus going into the green zone, a Republican Palace. It used to be Saddam's, now it was the headquarters of the Coalition Provisional Authority. So I turned up and said, you know, hello, Emma from England, come to volunteer. <laughs> and there was a list. They had a list there, and my name was on that list. So I started to feel a little bit more confident. And I had my first briefing from a British officer, a British colonel, who told me the situation in Iraq was stable. The greatest threat to my life would be from trigger-happy Americans. Probably Texans, but <laughs> he, didn't, he hadn't added that detail.
2: Good thing we're meeting in New York, so it's okay.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I've got a few Texas stories now. Um, So, after about a week in Baghdad, they said, We've got enough people here, try the north. They didn't say where in the north, they just said, Try the north. So, I went to Mosul, flew to Mosul, and they said, We've got somebody here, we're okay, keep going. So, eventually, I arrive in Kirkuk. And when I arrive in Kirkuk, I'm then told I'm the senior civilian responsible for administering the province, and reporting directly to Ambassador Bremer in (laughs) Baghdad. Now, you might think, you know, British, you're used to running the empire, (laughs) but I'm not from that background, and I thought this was, like, terribly embarrassing. I'd never run a town in my own country, let alone a province in somebody else's. And I realized that Iraqis took my new position quite seriously, when insurgents tried to assassinate me in my first week. Normally, people got to know me a little bit longer than that, but this was like week (laughs) one. So I was downtown in my house. Insurgents came to the door, fired rockets into it. Unfortunately, it was a well-made house. So the rocket that came in through the ceiling and up into the room where I was in bed exploded in the ceiling. So I went to the government building, got up... (laughs) went to the Kukuk government building, which is supposedly the headquarters of the Kukuk Provincial Council, and it was swarming with U.S. soldiers. They'd taken over every room in the building, put their unit's name on it, and they were running around in pajamas with their name tags on. And I I didn't know anything about militaries, but I did what you're told to do whenever you arrive in a foreign land. I grabbed hold of one of the young soldiers and said, take me to your chief. And he was like, yes, ma'am, follow me. So I was following this soldier up the stairs to this room, largest room in the building, used to be the governor of Kukuk's and had been taken over by Colonel Bill Mavel. So I walked in and he was lounging on the couch with his boots up. And I said, you know, introduce myself. And I said, Colonel, it's all rather awkward and embarrassing, but my house has been blown up. And is there any chance you might have a spare tent on the airfield?" And he sat up, and he snarled, and he was like, we're going to hunt them down and do nasty things to them. And I was just, I said, come, you ought to do no such thing. You know, they're attacking me because I'm a symbol of an illegal occupation. All I want from you is a tent, not a death warrant. So that was my first interaction, which was pretty negative. I went to see him, well, when I left the room, A message... I was like, how on earth am I supposed to work with these people? Then I got sent a message that the tent had been made available to me. What wasn't told to me, but I found out later when I turned up at my tent, was it already had seven men in it. (laughs) So that was my new accommodation, and these were not seven men of my choosing, they had been put there. And so I went... It
2: wasn't your harem. (laughs) No.
3: (laughs) It sounds good. It was not good. It was not good. (laughs) So I turned up the next day to see the colonel. I went back. I had my laptop, and I downloaded onto my laptop the fourth Geneva Convention. And I said, colonel, you know, come and sit down here. And I read it to him line by line. And I said, if I find you violating any of the articles, I will take you to The Hague. Now, this was early days. I didn't know that America wasn't a signatory to me. <laughs> International Criminal Court, and you can't take Americans to The Hague. But anyway, I didn't know that. So it was not a very auspicious encounter. And this first was before encounter. President
2: Trump threw out the whole concept of the laws of war.
3: <laughs> yes.
2: So this was a clash of cultures. Yes. But how did your view now, obviously, you did not actually refer Bill Mayville to The Hague for prosecution. And instead, <laughs> if, I, if I may break the news to the audience, You actually Mm -hmm. formed a fast friendship with him. So tell us how your view of the U.S. military changed as you spent more time in contact with it.
3: Well, he was actually really delighted to see me because he thought I was his replacement. (laughs) (laughs) They had been told, you know, the army comes in... So many misapprehensions
2: in one country, yes.
3: Yeah, and then the civilians come and take over. So he thought I was the first of the civilians to arrive, and we would do a left seat, right seat, or a right seat, left seat... And then he would go. So he said, we're to share an office. I'm going to take you around the country, introduce you to everybody, and then I'm going to leave. And I thought, you know, it's only going to be two weeks. I can put up with this man for two weeks. So every morning, he would make me a cup of tea, because I think he thought that's what you, know, you do with British women, you make them tea. And I was treated a bit like a pet. <laughs> and, you know, I had to spend all this time with him. And I realized that we actually had the same objective, which was to get Kukuk back on its feet, Iraqis running their own affairs, so the U.S. military could withdraw. And the more time I spent with him, I realized we got shared values, that we'd read the same books. And he was actually very funny. And I was the nearest thing he had to a Middle East expert, and he wanted to learn everything he could from me. Well, the two weeks came and went and it became very clear that the brigade wasn't going anywhere and I wasn't the first of the civilians. I was kind of it. And he said, look, you know how to do this nation building thing much better than we do. How about I assign a whole bunch of my paratroopers to work for you? And so that's how we started working really closely together. And whenever you know, Ambassador Bremer, or a civilian came, I would sit in the seat and he'd be my military advisor. And whenever a military guy came, he would sit in the seat and I'd be his political advisor. So it was just us making it up as we went along without much direction from above. And we really bonded.
2: Well, you Later on, of course, you rose to even greater fame, prominence, and influence with essentially the same role with General Ray Odierno when he was the operational commander uh, in Iraq during the surge from 2006 to 2008. And then when he returned 2008 to 2010 to become the, the overall uh, commander in uh, Iraq. And I'd like you just to tell us about your relationship with General Odierno because obviously, as Roger alluded to, it, it was very incongruous, this hulking six foot five guy with massive beefy build with bald head, a U.S. Army general who looks like he could squish anybody with one hand, and then you, who are somewhat smaller than that, I would say.
3: Appetite for Europe.
2: Yes. Uh, but, you, but you had a, I mean, I saw this a little bit firsthand, but you recounted much more in your, in your book that you, you, you were the opposite of obsequious with him. And in fact, I mean, you, you gave him a hard time pretty much all the time, as far as I could tell. <laughs> but just to give you one example that you cite in your book. When you were in a helicopter with General O, and uh, he made a comment that Saddam Hussein uh, was a mass murderer, and your reply was, "We still don't know who killed more Iraqis. You are Saddam, sir." And as you recount, this was greeted by total silence among all the general 's aides until he uh, uh, in a joking way, said, "Open the door, pilots, throw her out." Uh, but that was I think that's a in a nutshell, kind of the relationship you had with him and, Tell us how that, how that developed and, and how you worked together.
3: So I had just completed a tour in Afghanistan and was back in London. And out of the blue, I got this email from General Odieno saying he'd just been appointed to be the corps commander, was going back to Iraq, and would I come as his Polad? And, you know, I'd just come out of Afghanistan. The last thing I wanted to do was go back to Polad Iraq. Polad
2: being political advisor.
3: Political advisor. And so I did what any sensible person would do. I just ignored the email and pretended to go into my spam. But generals have minions, lots of them. And within about two hours, a photo of my house on Google Earth in London had been found, and they sent it to me with rockets pointing down at it. I was kind of, not again. So I went back. Now, I'd met... General O in 2003, because he'd been Colonel Mavel's boss. So that's how I would got to meet him. And when I arrived back to work for him, you know, we sat down and I said, what do you want me to do? And he said during his first tour, he had learned the limitations of military force. And he'd seen the way that I'd worked with the brigade. He'd seen how I'd influenced the brigade. And he saw how I'd worked with the Iraqis, using persuasion to you know, convince them to do things. And he said, you just got a really, really different perspective. I want you to come with me wherever I go. And you know, whether it's the front line or in the meetings with Iraqis, I want you to be there. I want us to talk you know, before we go. I want us to discuss things afterwards. I just want to have a sense of you know, a different perspective. And he said, you know, you have to tell me when I'm screwing up. I thought, wow. You know, I don't have to. (laughs) I can be unfiltered. And I just thought... to
2: explain for the audience, most four-star generals I have met would not admit that there's even a possibility that they could screw up, much less to ask somebody to point that out to them.
3: I mean, I just thought it amazing, because in all the books that you read about leadership, they always tell you you should surround yourself by people who are different from you. And people rarely do. They usually got people around them who are like them, and particularly the military culture, because it, the culture is so strong. And you get this sort of, you know, worship of the generals, cult of the individual. And as you mentioned, you don't get two people more different than General Odieta and myself. And if it wasn't for the Iraq War, our paths would never have crossed. I mean, he's nasty. I like to think I'm nice. <laughs> he's, you know, he likes football, American football. I mean, hes just, we're just really, really different. <laughs> and it, it, it was just, you know, it amazed me. He was somebody who I respected. I respected him from the moment I met him. I liked him. I thought, if he feels that I can be of use to him, then... I will come back to work for him. You know, I said the first time I went was to apologize for the war. The second time was just because a guy who I had tremendous respect for asked me. I didn't have any illusions that, you know, we were going to turn Iraq around and it was all going to end well. Not at all. I just went because he asked.
2: Well, let's talk about, that's a, that's a good segue to talk about how, in fact, Iraq turned out. Now, obviously, you're at General O's right hand, when you were masterminding the surge, uh, which by a lot of metrics was a miraculous turnaround with violence having fallen more than 90% between 2007 and 2009. And yet, obviously, today you look at Iraq and it's a bigger mess than ever. So the obvious question is, what the heck happened?
3: It's, you know, it's not easy to explain. I think the surge was an incredible period. You know, we'd sat down and we'd thought, we'd really examined why was there all this violence in Iraq? What was causing all this instability? Who was fighting us? Who were all these different groups? And how could we get them to stop fighting us? Now, this required a real change in mindset on behalf of the military, because the military is used to identifying the enemy and targeting them. So to actually consider why people were fighting us, to try and learn who these different groups were, what it was that they wanted, and then reach out to them and try and get them out of the fight and into the political process, and to just put to the side those who were irreconcilable. So it was a whole different mindset a different mindset to go out and live among the Iraqi people again, to protect them from the bad guys, to earn their trust and respect. So all this had happened. And there was a real change in Iraqi psyche during this period. And people talk a lot about all the different tactics, but the psychological effect of the surge was huge. Everybody thought the country was lost. Everyone thought the Americans were just going to get out. But to say You know, I think it was a very brave decision by President Bush, because most people were saying, get out, cut and run. Not you, of course, but most people said that. So it was a brave decision. but big changes, you know, had a huge psychological impact on Iraqis. We'd seen before the surge, Sunnis in Anbar province starting to turn against al-Qaeda. They realized they were losing the civil war, to the Iranian-backed Shia militias. that Al-Qaeda was taking them to certain death. They knew that Americans were against Iran that they could, and against Al-Qaeda. They could fight against Al-Qaeda and realign with the Americans against the Shia militia. And when they stopped the Al-Qaeda attacks on the Shia, the Shia then became less tolerant of all the Shia militias. We put a lot of pressure on Prime Minister Maliki to go after Sunni insurgents and Shia insurgents, so the state was getting stronger. And with the U.S. forces working with the Iraqi forces, really built up the state. And so the surge succeeded in bringing about a shift in the strategic calculus of all the different Iraqi groups. And, as you said, the violence dropped dramatically. Our casualties first went down, and then the Iraqi casualties first went down. The Iraqis felt the Civil War was behind them. All the indicators were in the right direction. And everything looked it was going in the right way. And then it all unraveled. And for me...
2: Hence the title of the book.
3: Hence the title. For me, the key event was the 2010 elections. Because the 2010 elections, we'd hoped that, you know, you have all these positive things happening during the surge. We were hoping that it would bring about a political agreement among Iraq's elites to share power, agree on the way ahead. And the 2010 elections was this big event. And the turnout for those elections was really high. So people before who had boycotted the elections turned out. People who had been insurgents took off the insurgent tab and stood as candidates. And there was a real optimism that the country was headed towards a good place. Now, during this period, you know, Iraqis kept saying we've had enough of political we've had enough of religious parties, had enough of that. And this group, this coalition came together called Iraqiya that campaigned on a platform of Iraq for all Iraqis and noticed sectarianism. And this group was headed by Ayad Allawi who is secular. He's of Shia background, but he identifies as secular. He doesn't identify by sect. Um, Went on to win the most votes in the elections, won the most seats in the elections. It attracted the support of secular Shia, of Sunnis, of Iraq's minorities, all the different minorities. Now, Nouri al-Maliki, when he saw the results, just refused to accept them. People in the Middle East don't lose elections. That doesn't kind of happen. So he refused to believe the results. He started to demand a recount. He started to use debathification to try and change the election results. And he just sat in his seat and just said these results aren't true. And so there was disagreement within the US system over what to do. So General Odierno, my boss, believed that the US should uphold the election results uphold the rights of the winning bloc, Iraqia, to have first go at trying to form the government, which is kind of what you do in a parliamentary system. He didn't think Alawi would be able, would succeed with himself as prime minister, but he thought this process would lead to an agreement between Alawi and Maliki, or a selection of a third person to be prime minister. So that was his recommendation. The ambassador had a different view.
2: Ambassador Chris Hill?
3: He had a different view. So he didn't have the regional experience. He was qu- quite new to the country. He had not done tour after tour after tour like the rest of us, so he was new. His embassy was new. He would turned over all the old stuff. He'd brought in his own people. And his view was that Iraq's not ready for democracy. Iraq needs a sheer strong man, and Maliki's our man. And so Joe Biden, vice president, who was... Been given the Iraq portfolio, I had to listen to these two opinions, and Joe Biden decided, look, Maliki, Maliki's our man. Maliki will give us a follow-on security agreement to keep an element of troops there after 2011, and that supporting Maliki is the quickest way to see the government in Iraq formed ahead of U.S. midterm elections. So he went with maintaining the status quo. The only problem with this was that Iraqis didn't want to keep Maliki as prime minister. And the elites had spent, you know, for two years, been trying to remove him through a vote of no confidence in the parliament. And each time, the US had stepped in and said, look, security situation is too precarious. Keep Maliki as prime minister now. If you want to replace him, do it through a national election. So when the national elections came and Maliki didn't win, the elites thought, this is our chance for someone new. And the Americans kept pushing, pushing, pushing on the politicians to support Maliki, and they refused. Iran sensed this was its opportunity. Iranian influence was really low because of the surge. But Iran, Qasem Soleimani sensed a moment to step in. So Iran's thinking was Maliki should stay as prime minister because all the countries in the region hate Maliki. So you keep Maliki as prime minister, that will prevent Iraq from becoming integrated into the Arab world. It will keep Iraq close to Iran, or make Iraq go close to Iran. And they put huge pressure on Muqtadr al-Sadr and the Sadrists, who hated Maliki, but they put big pressure. And the deal was, support Maliki. Maliki will ensure no U.S. troops in Iraq after 2011, and Maliki will give Sadrists key positions. So basically, that's what happened. Maliki got his second term.
2: Basically because the U.S. and Iran teamed up together (laughs) against the will of the Iraqi voters to get him another term.
3: And Maliki, in his second term, the first thing he did was go after the Sunni politicians. He accused them of terrorism, drove them out of the political process. He reneged on his promises to those Sunni tribal leaders who had fought against al-Qaeda in Iraq. So the leaders were either arrested, killed, or forced to flee the country. He arrested Sunnis en masse. And this led to Sunni protests. And those protests were violently crushed.
2: And most of this happened after the US pulled all of its troops out in 2011. So there is no longer a restraining influence from the United States.
3: No restraining influence. And the Islamic State rises up out of the ashes of Al Qaeda in Iraq and presents itself as the defenders of the Sunnis against the Iranian-backed Shia militia. And tragically, a lot of the Sunnis looked at ISIS. They looked at the Iranian-backed government of Maliki, and they determined that ISIS was the lesser of two evils. And so you saw ISIS just sweep in very quickly and took over a third of the country
2: which is what we're dealing with at the moment. Now, they've been rolled back a little bit, but do you think that ISIS is, in fact, on the way to defeat, as the administration has suggested? Or do you think that we should be doing something different than what we're actually doing now to deal with the Islamic State threat?
3: When I look at ISIS, I see ISIS as a symptom of a problem. You have dysfunctional government in the U.S., and the symptom is your friend Donald Trump. You get dysfunctional government in Iraq, and the symptom of this is ISIS. So ISIS is a symptom of broken politics, corrupt government. If you just look at ISIS as a military problem, you smash this iteration. But the circumstances, the environment is still the same, and you just pave the way for son of ISIS in the future. Like, ISIS is the son of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And the cycle continues. So it can't be viewed as simply a military problem. It is much bigger than that. When ISIS came into Mosul, the Iraqi army, which was outnumbered it, I don't know, 100 to one, just fled. So Maliki had replaced those officers, who he regarded as close to the Americans, with guys close to him, who had no experience, no qualifications for that role, and they took the money that was supposed to buy the ammunition and food for the soldiers, they pocketed it. So no orders were given to the Iraqi army to fight. So you've got a problem with the state. Now there are all these different militia groups. Militias are much stronger than the Iraqi state. And it's difficult to rebuild up an Iraqi army given the politics are so contested. So there is no simple solution. But until you deal with the politics of Damascus, where Assad has mass-murdered the Syrian people. And until there is a better political system and better politicians in Baghdad, there are going to be all of these non-state actors and this continuation of ISIS.
2: One lesson that a lot of people take away from our time in Iraq is that it's a fool's errand uh, to try to instill democracy in the Arab world. that the the Arab Middle East is, in fact, better off with despots instead of trying to create more pluralistic societies. I'd be curious, having been in the middle of this for so long, what is your take on that argument?
3: You know, you can look at a country like Oman and think Sultan Qaboos, what a wonderful guy. He has built up his country and made all those different people in Oman feel that they are Omani. What happens when he dies, it's not clear where the succession is. But you have an example there of a benevolent authoritarian leader. Rarely are authoritarian leaders so benevolent. So when you look at the Assads and you look at the Saddams of the world, they didn't succeed. They really, really didn't succeed. People in Iraq look back at the... Golden era is the era of the monarchy. They look back at that as the good time. When they did have parliament, they did have different political parties. They did have different agendas. It's, you know, at the beginning in 03, Iraqis were suddenly given, you know, early elections. All of these things happened really early on. And through debathification, through dissolving the military, we had collapsed the state and so suddenly, you've a collapsed state, and then elections, all of these things happening, led to a civil war. It's, it's hard to know how you manage countries such as Iraq and Syria. It can't be done by a strong central government. I think it can only really work when you have federalism, you have government devolved down to provincial level, confederation with Kurdistan that people should be elected as representatives of the communities in which they live. I think then you're starting to look at a workable form of governance. But it, it takes time. I don't think there's something inherently wrong with Muslims or with Arabs that means they can't live in a democratic society. We have plenty of Arabs and plenty of Muslims living in democratic societies in the West. So I don't believe... It's impossible. I think it is possible with enlightened politicians, enlightened leaders. Unfortunately, Iraq doesn't have many of those. So I don't think it's beyond human capacity. I think a lot of it depends on the sort of leadership.
2: It's become kind of a commonplace of American politics, which you hear uh, particularly from the likes of... uh, of uh, foreign policy savants like uh, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, that basically uh, everything has gone to hell in a handbasket in the Middle East because of the invasion of Iraq, that we, that was this wonderful status quo which we destroyed. Now, at the very beginning of your book, you say, nothing that happened in Iraq after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein in 2003 foreordained, and there was nothing inevitable about the way the story unfolded. So, I deduce from that that that, you you do not believe that the invasion of Iraq was this uh, original sin which made it impossible to build anything in its wake.
3: I don't believe the Iraq war should have happened. I mean, I think at 03, that war should not have happened. It was fought on the wrong premise. That said, nothing that happened afterwards was inevitable. There were different pathways that Iraq could have taken to the Iraq War, and the way in which we departed Iraq. We left a weak state, and we changed the balance of power in the region in Iran's favor. And this has triggered this geopolitical competition between Iran, and Saudi, and the Gulfies, which is leading them to support these extreme sectarian actors in these different countries, turning local grievances over bad governance into these proxy wars. So that is an outcome. Of the Iraq War. It didn't have to go that way, but it did go that way. But you're also dealing on a legacy of bad regimes in the Middle East, post-colonial regimes, that those who came into power didn't take the opportunity to build up their countries with inclusive national identities. And the liberals didn't come up with an alternative. They were prepared to accept security. It was always It's either security or it's the Islamists, and they went along with that. The Arab Spring brought hope that there was a unified voice for a moment among the young in the Arab world, demanding dignity. It brought hope that change was possible. But sadly, with the exception of Tunisia, we've seen the regimes re-exert themselves. We've seen the other groups unable to come together with common objectives. Civil wars now in Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen create the space for groups such as ISIS and those radical ideas proliferate through social media and media. And the extremist ideology of ISIS, some of that obviously comes from Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. So the ingredients were there. It wasn't that the Middle East was living in perfect harmony. But the Iraq war has triggered sectarian conflict. But there was something there to ignite. Right.
2: right. I'm going to stop asking you questions, and I'm going to ask the members of the audience uh, to join in. So you have a microphone there. You have another one there. Uh, You want to go ahead, Uh, sir? Thank you for such a perspicacious talk. Uh, Question. About the time in 2010 when we decided to back Maliki, wasn't that about the time when we started secret negotiations with Iran or at least planned to do so? How much did that enter into the decision of the Obama administration and Vice President Biden to back Maliki and the Shiites? In 2010,
3: I don't think that was part of the calculation at that stage. I think that becomes the calculation after Maliki gets his second term, because when Maliki starts to do all of these things, you're not seeing the U.S. push back on it. And when you can see the Iranians getting stronger and stronger in Iraq, you're not seeing the U.S. push back on that. So it wasn't 2010, it wasn't for the government formation, it's what happens really at the next year, 2011, when that comes back. Sir?
1: To what extent do you believe the
2: policy of the pursued under Akhmed's lobby contributed to the political climate that we saw, or, it, or at least the instability we saw during the Civil War and the formation of groups like the Corps or uh, the, the, pop, the growing popularity of the Stadrists?
3: So de as it was originally conceived, I think was based on denazification. It was something that was very much being pushed by Iraqi exiles, and U.S. policymakers went along with it. But Ambassador Bremer, you know, in his words, he didn't think it was going to go that deep. He just thought it was to take out the top layer. Ahmed Chalabi made sure it went very deep. And it, you know, it became de sunification the Bath Party for all its sins and horrors, and Saddam for all his sins and horrors, wasn't sectarian in that way. Saddam would kill anybody who opposed him. He killed his best friend just to show he wasn't partial to anybody. You know, he was equal opportunities mass murderer. But debathification became de sunnification. It became the association of every Sunni with Saddam. And so those who were Kurds or those who were Shia, who were members of the Ba'ath party, they were not treated in the same way. So this made people who were Sunni suddenly identify very differently from the way they identified before. There was no Sunni identity as such before 2003. They just related to, as being Iraqi, they related to the state. Depathification became a witch hunt on them. So that caused a real sense that there was no future for them in the country, and that pushed many people towards insurgency. Now, when you look at members of ISIS, you can trace their path to being, once upon a time, being members of the Bath party, then being part of the insurgency, then joining ISIS. Some of them have become religious, some have just grown beards but are not religious. So it, it does relate. Next question.
2: Hi,
1: um, you mentioned that um, what's needed is a political solution both in Damascus and in Baghdad. Uh, it seems like Prime Minister Abadi is trying to push some reforms, but he has tremendous pushback from from even the Shia parties. And I was wondering if you could talk to the prospects of him instituting reforms, the likelihood of him fighting against the Shia to actually embrace the Sunnis, or how genuine he does want how genuinely he does want to embrace the Sunnis.
2: Thank you.
3: Very good question. So Prime Minister Abadi, who became Prime Minister in 2014, after, really after the Ayatollah Sistani, the leading Shia cleric, basically said, Maliki has to go. Maliki is taking the country to destruction. And so the Dawa Party went into a small room and they came out with Haider Abadi as the new Prime Minister. Now, Haider Abadi is... You know, he's much better at getting on with people. So people like him. He's willing to, you know, to chat and to joke and to negotiate. So people were very hopeful that this was going to be a new method of doing politics. The Iraqis have been protesting and protesting because no electricity, poor service delivery. And how can an oil-rich country not have water and electricity for its people? And so these protests started, and Sisterni came out in support of the protests. And Abadi then had the support of the street to try and bring about reforms. So the political system is very corrupt. We introduced, in 2003, this division by sect and ethnicity. So you get the post because you are a Kurd, and you are a Sunni, and you are a Shia, which meant these ministries were parceled out to the political parties and then used as their personal fiefdoms, just as patronage systems. And the public know that. Everybody hates this system, and they were demanding a technocratic government. So Abadi puts forward, about two weeks ago, a list of technocrats. Now, because it's a parliamentary system, this has to then be approved by the parliament. And, of course, the political parties are doing everything that they can to prevent this from being approved. So they've demanded certain names be replaced. When they went for parliamentary votes the other day, there was almost a political coup within the parliament that came out demanding the replacement of the speaker of the parliament, who's a Sunni, the most moderate Sunni as well. So suddenly, they would talk about replacing him. So you see all these machinations and games going on. And you look at Abadi, and you think, he is trying to do the right thing. He's trying to put in technocrats to run the ministries so that services get delivered from the political parties, from services get delivered by the ministries. But to grab power back from these political parties is really hard. You've got so many displaced people in Iraq living in tents with nothing, and yet in the parliament there are fist fights going on because people don't want to lose their power. So it's going to be really, really difficult. In Iraq, always goes into crisis, and then somehow, somewhere, weird solutions get worked through. So whether they'll come to some agreement about keeping some of the political party nominees and some of the technocrats remains to be seen. So Muqtada al-Sadr had been camping out in the green zone demanding this. Then when Abadi put forward the list, he was happy and went home. Now that the parliament hasn't approved the list, he's calling people to come up and protest again. So it's up and down, up and down. And you would think they'd be focused on ISIS. ISIS, they're focused on their own power, which is what I'm saying to Max, that ISIS is a symptom of a much bigger problem, which is this political class, which have been in power since 2003, and have stolen so much money from the state, and have delivered very little for the Iraqi people.
2: It Almost makes the US Congress look good by comparison. (laughs) Almost.
1: Um, So, given the shifting landscape of allegiances between Western powers and uh, the Middle East, do you think there's, like, a way to define who we should call a Middle Eastern ally and whether it's worth looking into, as President Obama suggested, um, redefining allies that we've had for a while, like Saudi Arabia, as Middle Eastern allies?
3: It's really... Difficult question, because you don't look at the Middle East and see lots of people you'd really want to be allies with. (laughs) But the Middle East is the Middle East. And it's important for America to be seen as a reliable ally. Because as soon as America starts withdrawing from the region, that power vacuum is filled by others and not people that we particularly like. So it's filled by Iranians expanding Putin waltzing across the international scene, ISIS, they're all filling the power vacuum. Now, the Saudis' paranoia is that America is not just pivoting away from the region, but America is jumping into bed with the Iranians. That is the paranoia. They feel that Obama is dumping them and going off to Tehran. And this is dangerous. That perception is very dangerous, because then Saudi starts to do crazy things. So I think a key role for America to play is balancer-in-chief in in the region. Got to try and balance Saudi and the Iranians, not to be in bed with one against the other, but to try and balance, to try and de-escalate these sectarian tensions because Saudi and Iran mobilize people using sectarianism. At the end of the day, it's a power struggle between these two countries, and they mobilize people using sectarianism. So I think America's got a key role to play in trying to balance and seeing its role as a balancer in chief.
2: Next question. Uh, From your experiences, uh, how can we better develop uh, international law uh, to protect individual human rights? In 30 seconds or less.
3: (laughs) I mean, the... You know, at one level, you could say, well, if America supported international law, if America supported the United Nations and these things, it's difficult because we've had a whole period of undermining the UN rather than supporting it. Now we're into the use of drones, assassinating people all over the place, even in countries we're not at war at. You think it's not going to be long before other countries have armed drones as well, and we have not not done enough to create international norms about the usage. So it is hard, because you can say, yes, to the United Nations, but then look at the United Nations. I can see Max's face. There are lots of problems with the United Nations.
2: I was actually just thinking that it was scary how much we agreed upon, and then you dispelled that. And I'm I mentioned the United Nations.
3: <laughs> it, is, it is difficult. You want to build up these international norms. And you can look at, you know, the responsibility to protect that we have responsibilities in international community to intervene in another country if there's mass murder going on. And that's what we used as the legal argument for going into Libya. Russia and China supported it there. They thought it was to protect the people of Benghazi when it became used to bring about regime change and get rid of Gaddafi. Russia and China will no longer support responsibility to protect, hence there's been no agreement international community agreement on what to do about Syria. So I'm sorry, I don't have good answers for you. Sir.
1: To, to what degree did the country of Iran become the ultimate
2: victor in the, in, the, in the Iraq war? And if it's significant, what does Iraq look like five years from now?
3: I think Iran is the big winner out of the Iraq war. People in the region talk about how America handed Iraq to Iran on a silver platter. Or they talk about a secret agreement between the US and Iran, even before there was a secret agreement. Um, So Iran is the big winner. But you could also say that maybe Iran is changing, maybe the nuclear agreement, maybe all of these things will bring about a change in Iran. Maybe Iran will become less of a revolutionary power. Maybe it could become more of a status quo power. But those can't be assumptions that we work on at all. Those are risks. Iraq, five years from now, I mean, at the moment, it's a state of militias. It's a state of warlords. I don't know how that evolves. I imagine these power struggles going on will continue going on for at least a decade. And whether some balance of power in each province will be found remains to be seen. The Kurds are going more and more towards independence. Whether they will choose to remain part of Iraq in a confederation remains to be seen what happens to the rest of Iraq. But you could see that bits of Iraq just become clients of Turkey, Iran, Saudi. Yes, thank you. Uh, With the surge, we also heard that millions of dollars were spent to bribe the Sunni tribal chiefs. And and that was very, very important to accompany the surge. Did the breakdown of the status of forces agreement, which would have subjected American soldiers to Iraqi law, how important was that in the withdrawal that Obama decided to make in 2011? And finally, as a personal question, did the pacifism of Vera Brittain in the UK influence your philosophy in any way? You don't don't have to do all three.
2: We're limited for time, so.
3: The Sunni awakening, the payroll, was American payroll at the beginning, then it was handed over to the Iraqis. And so it was meant to be paid for by the government of Iraq, and then Maliki stopped paying the payroll. Second question was status of forces agreements. The U.S. wanted legal agreement to keep U.S. forces inside Iraq. The precedent had been set by George W. Bush by having the Iraqi parliament vote on that. The Iraqi parliament, the agreement, we called it the status of forces agreement or the security agreement. The Iraqis always called it the withdrawal agreement in Arabic. There was never going to be parliamentary support to keep US forces in Iraq. Whether there could have been an executive agreement, behind the scenes letter, those things are always options but it would not have got parliamentary support in the Iraqi parliament.
2: But how important was that, given the fact that we currently have something like 5,000 troops in Iraq without a SOFA?
3: So we have found other mechanisms of executive to executive and not going through a parliament.
1: Hi. Hi. Um, So I think one thing that's been clear about the Iraq war is that the United States has been a political loser, and you've mentioned that many things about the Iraq war weren't inevitable, but do you think it's inevitable that the United States will continue to be a political loser in its continuing
3: involvement? (laughs) You know, in my most depressed moments, I look at the Iraq war having brought about the unraveling of the Middle East, the meltdown, of Europe and the European Union and the end of Pax Americana that had upheld security and stability in the world for 70 years. That's in my most depressed moments. (laughs) But (laughs) I don't think it's, it's over yet. There is no, you know, there's no better alternative to liberal democracy. People aren't rushing to get visas to go to China. America still has the capacity and the capability to be the dominant power in the world. The question is the will. And I think after the hyper-intervention of George W, through to the non-action of the current president, I think the next president, assuming, assuming the next president is not President Bush, President, president Trump, sorry, <laughs> assuming it's not Trump, I think the pendulum will swing back to the middle. So I still believe there's a role for America to play in the Middle East, not putting hundreds of thousands of troops on the ground, but playing that diplomatic role, playing that mediator role, helping to balance the different groups. So it's not over yet. The Iraq story goes on and on and on. Our involvement is much, much less now.
1: Well, you could have heard a pin drop during this entire discussion, and it has been an enlightening one. I apologize to all of those people who wanted to ask questions, but we try to hold to our, you know, reasonable discipline like Ambassador Bremer. Um, We try to close these things at about 7.30. Um, I think we owe a debt of gratitude to Emma and Max, and I think Emma Sky will sign any of those books, which I hope you buy, in our bookstore. And um, I thank them both for coming. It was a, a great, great evening.